Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Welcome to the IAI conference in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, you, you may not hear some of the noise you typically hear in the background when we do these things, but uh, uh, you know, my new job kind of had me working in the vendor hall instead of you know, having fun recording podcasts. So uh, we're, we're just kind of found a little quiet space in the, the convention center to do a little recording. In fact, people have been trying to get a photo of us together for the <laughs> podcast for the website, and they have not been able to find us together because we've not had a chance to see each other. We've <laughs> really. barely had a chance to see each other because you've been obviously very busy with the vendor stuff. I've been doing my own teaching, and our paths have just had difficulty meeting up. We did find each other uh, at the bar last night and uh, a little Demia party, exactly, uh, which was a ton of fun. But I um, uh, want to give a big thank you, shout out to all of our uh, patrons on patreon.com uh, because you were hearing us record on some brand new equipment. We got a portable system uh, instead of looking out the laptop and everyone crowding around one microphone we got nice little lapel mics and a handy portable recording device i can walk around with so yeah it's really cool it is really cool so glenn anything else before we jump into talking about the conference no i'm just really pleased that the iai was able to pull this off yeah. uh, there were concerns about membership and attendance which have not been founded i mean it, it's it's a lower registration in some years not much though but it doesn't feel that small i mean they, they have over a thousand people i exactly. thought and that's that's pretty standard yeah. and i know they're worried about like 600 so over a thousand is just beyond yeah. what everyone hoped for yeah in the past it used to always be a thousand but then I guess my understanding is for the centennial 100th anniversary, it kicked up to 1,500, but then has been at 1,500, 1,400 pretty consistently. So they've come to expect now 1,500. Sure. So this, yes, is a downturn from past years, but it still feels pretty big, and a lot of, uh, lot of the usuals are here. Absolutely. It's so good to see everybody. Yeah, uh, so great. good to see everybody. So um, joining us here today, we've got uh, Josh Connolly. Uh, from Nebraska, and uh, so we're just going to start talking about some of the things we've seen at the uh, the conference so far this year. So, uh, Josh, uh, so why don't you say hey to everybody, and you know, a little, little introduction about yourself uh, in case someone uh, hasn't met you. Well, thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller, as they say, <laughs> uh, although I think I have made the podcast one other episode kind of towards the beginning of the, uh, the pandemic. We did uh, a Discord where we did our... Uh, Wednesday night uh, yeah. social event uh, that turned into a weekly uh, event that was just fantastic to stay in touch with uh, some other folks in the latent print community. Uh, and it's just been a wonderful experience. I am super stoked to see people in person, uh, maskless or with a mask. I don't care. It's nice to have uh, human interaction again. Uh, I love my partner at work, but it is also nice to um, get away from the office for a week and uh, really reconnect with colleagues and uh, catch up on life. Um, it's not all work, um, but it's been amazing to just uh, witness some of the classes already. We have, uh, you know, we're midway through the week, so we ha we'll have another couple of days of uh, some good instruction workshops and uh, some more opportunities for some uh, fellowship and libations. <laughs> so uh, then, then, you know, uh, next question, uh, you know, what's some of the lecture workshop that you've been to so far that uh, has kind of struck you as interesting? Uh, something we can talk about here on the show. 
So I was actually fortunate enough to uh, witness Alice Maceo or Alice White's um, exploring the limits of uniqueness uh, lecture. Uh, it was kind of a, a, a snapshot into her her webinar. Um, she reviewed uh, historic texts and said, "Hey, what we've been told to say, uh, surprisingly, is probably not always accurate." Uh, and she went through where there was some. Uh, suggestions that had been made uh, from some of the folks that we uh, received our teaching from, um, but they weren't based really on scientific fact or even on, on um, biology. Uh, biology. Thank you, Glenn. So um, hearing her perspective and seeing kind of the realistic, uh, well, j j just the way that we assumed things and, and it's still this whole dogma that we have to get beyond and uh, it's going to make us better examiners. Um, so that was awesome. Uh, in fact, actually, it's right in the title, The Limits, right? The yes. Limits of the Science. And yeah. that's what she's out there advocating are, here are the limits of what we probably could or should be saying based on the, the science and the biology behind it. And it's, it's, it's actually a really good message. It's kind of pull us back a little bit. Correct. And she has certainly sold me on her, her, uh, her online class. So I will be bringing that back with me to my office and I will be putting in for it uh, as soon as she, uh, as soon as I can. So... Uh, another workshop that I watched uh, or that I observed was uh, about twins and fingerprints. Oh, yeah. um, Twinsburg, Ohio is the home of the Twins Festival. Uh, I have been made aware that it is this weekend. Uh, and I believe uh, a couple of esteemed colleagues are going to be going there to collect more fingerprints and possibly some other uh, biographic information. And it's just another way for us to look at the effects of genetics and environment on fingerprint development. So do we see close non-matches in, in twins? Do we um, look at their bilateral bilateral symmetry and, and a non-twins bilateral symmetry? And can we draw conclusions from that? And if we see that in the population, what does that mean as an examiner to essentially help us um, be very wary of some of those close non-matches? And, and we're seeing those a lot more now. So Again, being in the in the vendor booth, I haven't been able to go to much, but uh, so I haven't been to either of those so far that you've mentioned. But uh, did, were they seeing those close on matches uh, in those prints? What were some of the takeaways from uh, from that lecture? Well, from the twinning lecture, it was primarily looking at um, pattern types, overall pattern types, and not necessarily the minutia. Got it. So if they exhibited um, the same sorts of counts on a left loop or a right loop from their index fingers, if that was um, something that would be uh, between twin, uh, between monozygotic twins and dizygotic twins and, and just kind of the statistical relationships between those. Right, just what the difference is between, got it. Nothing necessarily new to the conversation. Right, so stuff that, that's, it's a repeat of previous studies that have, uh, that have been done before. Definitely building on existing research. Right. Yeah. So, since you brought it up, uh, and by the time this airs, it will already have happened. So, right. Uh, so, I am actually leaving the IAI conference early for the first time. I've never left before. Yeah. Uh, Alice and I are both leaving early to go to Twinsburg. Uh, she and Chris are driving down tomorrow to start setting things up. And I'm, or, yeah, they're, they're going tomorrow. I'll meet them on Friday, and we're setting up for this festival. And so, Saturday and Sunday, we'll be there. Alice has a booth rented, and we'll be um, fingerprinting twins 
and taking latent prints from them, which is what has been missing from all these different studies. And so this way we can develop sets of close knot matches, research stuff, comparison packets, training packets, etc. It is not inexpensive to get a booth there, and it's actually difficult as a researcher to get there. All these researchers from all over the world are coming, of course, they want to study identical twins. So it's actually identical twins love going to this, and then you have to compete for their attention uh, and you gotta like bring swag and you gotta like really get them into your booth because everyone wants to research on them and so you gotta actually compete against other vendors to bring them into your booth you can appreciate this Eric <laughs> <laughs> right it's, it's a competitive sure. uh, research environment and so we are trying to get them into the booth so that we can print them and get these latents um, Alice and Chris spent a, a lot of time getting various things for them to touch and handle um, and so we're getting ground truth latents from them but can't wait and we will it will not be free when we make it available to the community we'll have to make some money back from the expenses of this which have been pretty expensive <laughs> sure, I, sure i imagine yeah but we we hope that uh, at some point we'll be able to create these packets that people can purchase and they'll be useful for people. yeah absolutely so, Glenn, any, uh, what about you, yourself? What, uh, what some of the lectures that you've been able to sit in on? Yeah, I've only been able to attend a couple myself because I've been giving workshops. I saw a really interesting one in the professional development uh, line of, of lectures, and it was uh, about dealing with trauma in the field, uh, psychological trauma. Yeah. And, again, not talked about enough, our mental health, the things we get exposed to, and how it's effectively, you know, chronic abuse over time yeah. these little exposures to these cases these de details the pictures we see and so on and just you know some of the stories and this was uh, given by a psychologist uh, who deals with a lot of police officers and dealing with their trauma and things that they see you know, especially those that respond to road traffic accidents and just see the worst horrible things you know terrible terrible things seeing people die you know right. right in front of them and so you know he uh he gave some really good pointers about how to manage that and control anxiety and stress and then about of course communicating those issues that, that was needed and, and good so the one the the one i saw today that i really enjoyed was the new noblest fbi footwear black box study error rate study yeah yeah i was, did get to see part of that one that, that, was, that cool. was pretty some pretty cool stuff yeah what did, what, what did you think do you want well um stand out? so first off it was the uh just really some of the similarities between what uh what they found uh and what we've already seen in um uh, with the fingerprint black box studies yeah, the numbers were nearly identical they really were and uh and but also some of the kind of not just the pure numbers but some of the stories behind that right, right. how um uh, a lot of errors for, you know came from a small number of participants right. and uh the you know, much higher rate of erroneous exclusion um, not quite as bad as us, but, <laughs> but definitely higher than the, the false ID rate. I think another interesting part of it, though, was 
because they're already set up in a expanded conclusion scale, mm -hmm. it's kind of a preview of what we might expect from ourselves. I had the same thought. And yeah, the, you know, even with those in-between ones, there's error rates for those as well, or rates of misleading evidence. Uh, the, the thing that really jumped out right away was I mean, you would expect that the ends of the scale, the ID and the exclusion, would have the smallest error rate, and then they would get bigger as you approach the middle. Yeah. That makes sense, right? Because that's what you're one you're most conservative with. You don't want to go all the way to the either end uh, unless you're really sure. And on the ID side, that was that was that exactly was that was the case. On the exclusion side, that wasn't the case. The erroneous exclusion rate was was you know, much larger, and then when it went down to the almost exclusion category, it was a much smaller rate of misleading evidence, which. They, they kind of talked about some reasons why that might be the case. And it likely comes down to these huge class characteristics in footwear that right. we don't have the same things with fingerprints. If you're really sure that it's an exclusion, then you just exclude. And the concept of almost exclusion is very foreign to all comparative disciplines. And that, that limits the, the, how often examiners use that conclusion and then would, I guess, also limit their, uh, their error rate there too. Yeah, so. yeah. They they went through that a little bit too about some of the uh, the class characteristics and how they synced up with the decisions. You know, if uh, shoe size was present, tread was present, make and model of, the, and they, they showed how that really factored into these exclusion decisions. The the value of those and how. And we don't we don't have the make and model uh, <laughs> kind of have the fingerprints. No, so. we don't. <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> well, it was fantastic to see Austin Hicklin. You know kind of helping yet another discipline through another black box study so that then they can, just like we did, take that, use it in court, use it to do next level research as well. Yeah. And unfortunately, I did not see the other black box study that Austin presented, which was the bloodstain pattern analysis. Right. Although we've, we have a copy of the paper, I think we both have reviewed most of it. We have not talked about it on an episode yet. Because we're a bit behind. <laughs> I suppose that's coming soon. I, I really enjoyed that paper as well. And there were some really interesting findings, very specific to bloodstain pattern that I think are worth talking about because it comes down to language issues. So uh, the other one I did get to see was uh, a presentation by Nicholas Craven from Idaho on uh, open fields uh, in fingerprints. And a uh, short version is we got 20 individuals from the NIST 302 data set and looked at, looking at their 10, print, uh, uh, 10 prints of their fingers, measured how big an open field could be. So the way they did this was kind of more from an examiner viewpoint. So they had a, uh, a little tool in Photoshop that was so wide and uh, with you know, sides coming out. And if uh, you could count at least five ridges without any other ridge event occurring between these two kind of goalposts, then it was an open field and they'd count how far you could go following those two lines uh, to be an open field. So it wasn't like an area of open field, it was just this kind of column leading perpendicular from the ridge flow. A fixed distance column. Exactly. Okay. Some, some really good data. I, I think overall, it's. The, he also pointed out some of the next steps uh, for their research. Uh, I know it's going to be in the JFI maybe later this year. They're kind of starting off with the, the submission process for that. Just kind of a, a beginnings of, of a estimation for how far can you count and then where can you expect it. I think what, they, what they're finding was 
at about 12 or 13 ridges is the level when you don't know you no longer see on average one per finger and like minutia open fields most common in a thumb least common in a little finger uh, so some some just good you know beginnings of research here in open fields very excited to see yeah that. yeah I, I i wanted to see that i was sorry i missed it but <laughs> thanks for the recap yeah. I, and you said coming out soon in jfi that's the plan good good i look forward to seeing that I, I, when I was um, first working with Cedric's model, which was sensitive to open fields, I had done a little bit of research with it, not frequency data, but trying to measure uh, specificity effectively. Like how did the model respond to open fields in this area of the, of the finger? Again, without having some of the data that I, I wanted, it sounds like they're, they're collecting great data on that. But what I noticed is that for about every four to five ridges where there was not a minutia, that was about the weight of one minutia. So my, I always tell my students, my general rule of thumb, and it's a very, very loose rule of thumb, is if you have like 15, 16 ridges without you know, a minutia uh, in, in those 15, 16 ridges, that's about the weight of approximately four good average minutia. Um, you know, and, and I look forward to seeing if that matches up with their, their frequency data. That's, that's sure. what I had seen. So. I'm actually really jealous because uh, I haven't been able to get to as many lectures as I've wanted to this year because uh, the IAI will be in my backyard next year. I'm from Omaha, Nebraska. and In your actual backyard? And, well, <laughs> close to my backyard, maybe my neighbor's backyard. Um, and so I spent a lot of time the first three days this week really trying to get some ideas, working with uh, Candy uh, Murray in the, in the office to ensure that we can provide as the state chapter the resources necessary um, on the back end, the, 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 the hidden side of the conference to make it run as smoothly as we possibly can. Uh, we're really excited about it coming to Omaha. The last time it was there was in 1954. Oh. So it's, uh, it's probably well overdue. Um, sure. But the, the other good thing is Omaha is an incredibly awesome city. It has a lot to offer. It's kind of like the Silicon Valley of the Midwest. Uh, it's really designed it's in the beef valley, isn't it? Like the beef cattle valley? Eh, That's where I get I mean, my steaks from. We're known for our, probably for our cows and for our corn. Uh, but it, it's it's going to be a great location. The conference center is right across the street from the, Chicago, or the College World Series. Oh, wow. They've really built up that area for for bars and restaurants, foot traffic. They, they've really limited the amount of vehicular traffic. So I think it's going to be a great venue. I think it's going to be a great conference. Uh, we're really excited. We have a lot of good people uh, already kind of working some background stuff. So in the next year, hopefully we'll be able to pull everything together uh, and make it successful. And the great thing is I will be able to attend uh, next year because normally I am only allowed to attend every other year uh, because my partner and I have to switch out. So this will be the time when we both get to go. Well, if you're hosting it next year, I have a feeling you also will not be able to attend, I mean, in the same sense that you were so busy this week. And, and that is accurate because, yes, they do rely on us to do a lot of the logistical things, yeah. again, behind the scenes. And so I feel like I'll be able to maybe pick one or two really, really, like, 
things that I'm attracted to, and if I get to those, I should consider it a success. Yeah. Um, but I want to make it a success for everyone else that's in attendance. Uh, like I said before, it's just great to see people again, uh, and we're hoping for a good turnout. You know, one of my experiences, having attended now 20 years of IAI conferences, is you look at the the sites and you go, ooh, that's exotic. I want to go to Miami. I want to go to San Diego. I want to go, you know, coast or ocean or whatever. But it's actually some of the smaller Midwestern ones or the, the less expected, you know, um, I guess more in the Midwest, but some of those will catch you off guard because you got great people, great attitude, great places, home cooked food, or not home cooked food, but you know, just kind of down home comfort food. Very comfort food, exactly. Yeah. And that's a plentiful yeah. in downtown Omaha. And I always enjoy those. And it's one of the reasons I really like Milwaukee. I enjoyed that one immensely. Yep. Louisville was good too. Yep. You know, and obviously I'm looking forward to Omaha, even though that's not something that people say often, but. <laughs> That might have been the first time I've ever heard that. <laughs> our, our listeners should should consider that could be a really good time. Probably a lot of drinking involved too. Nebraska is is, is not a flyover state, much to other people's uh, chagrins. It is a is a great place to be, yeah. uh, and we know how to do things right. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I, I'm I know it will be fun. It, awesome. It'll be a hidden gem. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks, Josh, uh, for joining us here uh, in the first half of, uh, of this episode. And we'll come back here in a few minutes uh, with another guest uh, for the second half. Great. Thanks. Thank you, Josh. Thank you very much, Good guys. luck for next year. Thank you. All right, Glenn, we are back for the second half of this episode. If you hear some background noise, it's because we're in the main lobby of the Gaylord Opryland Hotel and Convention Center and Water Park, I guess. Uh, <laughs> Uh, we got a few, uh, a few people here uh, to join us for the second half of the show, so it's going to kind of round the horn. Uh, everyone uh, introduce every, uh, themselves to the podcast. Hi, my name is Kurt Abersald. I'm from Switzerland. Good evening, J.P. Rodriguez from Broward County Sheriff's Office. Good evening, Claudine Carter-Pineda, Broward Sheriff's Office. It is Thursday night, like I said, and that, we usually do it at the, the the vendor hall on like Tuesday night, so this is, we'll have a full, like almost week's worth of lectures to talk about here, uh, but we're just kind of just you know a couple people, uh, a couple lectures from each person of kind of what they saw uh, throughout the week. So, Glenn, we'll start with you. We kind of talked about a few things. Anything additional from when we talked on Tuesday? Well, I, the days are kind of a blur for me uh, earlier on. Yeah, and we are trying to emulate the energy and excitement of the Tuesday wine and cheese because of all the noise in the background, all the drunken people coming back from downtown Nashville. Uh, for me, the most exciting thing I've seen all week are magic shows. Uh, this whole group is why we're out a little bit late on Thursday. Uh, we all went to um, uh, a speakeasy downtown in Nashville called House of Cards, which is like a exclusive little club to get, you know, to go and get drinks and food, and they do magic shows there. And uh, we saw some great magic, and I've actually, I'm very excited about that. I know listeners are probably interested in the conference stuff, but I was teaching most of the week, and I don't know that I saw much more after Tuesday. I saw some, some good lectures on public speaking, on how to uh, appropriately design a CV and, and such. Uh, those were great, but the magic shows really stood out for me. I'd actually rather hear what our guests have to say about what they saw this week. All right, Kurt, uh, starting with you, uh, what's, what kind of lecture or workshop that you got to attend this week stood out to you as, as being memorable? Uh, the first one is I did my uh, first workshop with Kyle Hall, so it's on myself. And uh, just not from the conference, but 
first the fact already that I'm here is exceptional so when we look at the situation so it was quite a challenge to come here so that one and the second one is just uh, about all the testimony because for Switzerland we're not going often to court so that part there is really uh, for me uh, special and so I take advantage of the situation here to go to those lectures. Well, just real quick, the, the, the workshop you did with Carrie Hall, uh, tell us a couple things about it. <laughs> yeah, the, it was called uh, Measuring Specificity. So uh, it was to, to give our feelings some numbers. It was our approach to, to show the participants that there exists, it exists a tool called uh, Pianos with the ESLR, with the expected or estimated uh, score-based likelihood ratio. So we have tools to give our feelings numbers and, and have kind of a counter check if our feelings still works when we play the game with a real database. So, so if you're looking at a, a number of minutia, normally you would use your training experience to say, I think these minutia are rare or these minutia are maybe common. What you guys were doing was allowing the participant to use their training experience to take a guess and then showing them the data and the numbers to see if they were right by running it through a statistical model to measure effectively or estimate kind of the rarity of the, fair, of the, the characteristics. Yes, let's call it rarity, but... Um, not really. Uh, yes, afterwards from Christoph Schompo in my years, he will... <laughs> yes, yes. Kill me for that. But uh, yes, let's call it rarity. And we also, we, uh, we played the game with Mentimeter, so every participant, participant has a contact or the possibility to vote. An app. The, with, yeah, app to vote with the cell. And uh, it was often the play, uh, which of the images, which of the configuration of the minutia are more rare or less rare. And that's to, to become really a feeling what could be better or more suitable to use for, for a comparison. Yes, yeah. correct. Cool. That sounds great. All right, JP. Uh, on to you now. Lecture workshop you attended, uh, you know, taken back to Florida. Sure. So actually today I was there on uh, Karen Oswald. She did a lecture on using images from either somebody's cell phone that they had taken a picture of themselves or even something like Facebook or Instagram where they were holding evidence and they took a picture of themselves doing something they should not be doing. And later on it was uh, used by evidence and they were actually using the friction-rich skin to do a comparison from the picture, uh, on, you know, based on a standard. And basically, you know, the things you need to watch out for when doing that and how to do that process. And I just thought it was interesting because I see more and more people love to be bragging about all the, <laughs> the bad things that they're doing on Facebook, on Instagram, and being able to use that as evidence and later on testify on how you did it and able to affect uh, an identification. Were they all friction ridge skin images or any non-friction ridge skin images? So, yes, they were all uh, friction ridge skin images, whether it's fingers or palm. And then most of the time they had a suspect and they were able to do the comparison like that. 
did any of those involve uh, APHIS searches as well, or just a straight comparison of the images? So in the three cases that were discussed, they were uh, two of them were uh, one-to-one comparisons, I guess, uh, we would say. One of them was an attempt in APHIS. It was unsuccessful because the difficulty of possibly scaling the image because you don't know. But um, I know that Idemia does have some tools of measuring the ridge thickness and estimating the scaling of it. But she was also talking about how trying attempting to scale it yourself at different sizes. And after she had the IDs from other ones, she attempted it and we saw the difference on how just changing the scaling could move your candidate from 1 to 10 to 50. Just, and just by being off by a few millimeters. Yeah, I, uh, I there was, I think a few lectured a few a couple of years ago at the last uh, in in uh, Reno uh, along similar lines, and I remember taking that back to still, again when I was still doing casework full time, and that exact scenario, being able to put it in APHIS and get a hit. So uh, I, I love when lectures like that are immediately applicable and usable. So all right, great. And last but not least, <laughs> hi. Um, let's see. Well, I attended the statistics for forensic pac- practitioners workshop. And I was just looking for some new information. I didn't really get any new information except reminding myself how much I don't like statistics necessarily. But (laughs) my brain doesn't always work well. And I had the moments of like, oh, yeah, I remember doing this for my Ph.D. And I remember, yes, okay, yes, I remember doing this now and p-values and all these other things that I hadn't thought about for a while. So it was a good refresher. You know, I was looking to see because I, I, I'm looking for something in the latent realm to see where there's some sort of likelihood ratio or something that can be used in the latent field. And so we're still not there yet, but I always like to see where we are per, as far as progressing. Um, as far as other lectures I attended, um, I attended a, it was a case study about a 41-year-old latent that they were able to develop a latent with VMD. Very cool. So. 41 year, yes it was a 41 year old kid it was it was on a i'm not sure what it was it was porous surface i think but they i don't know i actually don't know what the surface was to be honest but anyway that i just saw what it was but i don't I didn't pay attention it had some writing on it, it and was I, on money. it was on it wasn't money yes. was that what it was are you it sure like European money or oh i don't know i just know i saw an, i, I saw but, but a funny color funny color it was <laughs> all i all i all i know it was all i know it was different it was color I know it was Can- I know it was Canadian, but I don't know what it was on. I know I saw writing, and I so, but it was interesting because he said that it was a cold case. They had processed it with powder though, previous super glue and powder previously, and re- got no results. And then they processed it with VMD, and were able to get a print, a beautiful print actually. And so um, I, so he was discussing like whether he thought maybe the fact that they had processed with powder previously might have been the reason why they were able to develop it later with vmd or whatever but it was very interesting because he said it literally had been in their evidence vault for 41 years and they pulled it out and was able and they developed a, i mean the print was gorgeous like beautiful so i was like it was a really good print so i was like okay and then he was talking about the you know he had a there was some stuff with the contrast and because there was writing and different stuff in the way so he had to you know address it a couple of times in order to develop it but i thought that was pretty cool so you mentioned that stats workshop. You mentioned who who taught that uh, that workshop. Um, hold on, I don't remember. Yes, it was Halster, and I mean it was great. Like it wasn't a, it wasn't a bad workshop. It's just that I you know I've taken a lot of statistics in my life, and so I haven't done anything in statistics for a few years. So me going back and going like 
Oh, yeah, I forgot about this. So, yeah, so it was more like my own personal thing, not like anything was wrong with the workshop. It was like a every time they described or explained it, I'm like, yep, that's exactly what it is. Okay. And then, but then it was like, oh, why am I doing this again? So, <laughs> yeah, we've mentioned Hal Stern a couple times on the podcast. Hal is a statistician uh, who was part of CSAFE, but he was also part of the NIJ uh, working group uh, for human factors for fingerprints. And uh, for now 10 years, uh, he has shown a dedication to learning our field, our language, how to speak with us, how to communicate with us. And then he's really trying desperately to teach us his world and his language. And that's a, it's a tough job, but I give him credit for being one of the few who really have taken the time to learn our language and try to enter our tribe. And I, give, I, have, to, I have to give hats off to that because it, you just don't see that. I mean, he made the statistics like he he's very good at explaining it he he gives real like he'll say a whole bunch of stuff and then like make it make it make sense so everything he said made sense it wasn't he did a great job it was just a matter of it's my own personal like why am i talking about t scores and p values and <laughs> again but that's just my own personal thing so but i've done i you know having done a lot of work in statistics previously it's just one of those like nightmares things it's a refresher thing. in my brain i'm like oh my god this is so far buried in in my, yes it was it's, so far buried yeah. in my brain i'm like oh it hasn't come back yet yep. but yes yeah, so it was good though it was um you know just just a, ref- a good refresher on different things i just wish there was more for you know the comparison sciences as far as you know because it's uh, the complexity of the comparison work makes it difficult to we've been talking about this to have a statistical model and so you know i i'm looking for that like i'm waiting for something to come up that we can use and i don't th- i don't know that we'll ever find something that captures everything that we do but if we could at least get something that is like a baseline of something and we can utilize that it would be great yeah just the stranger has a question uh i was just wondering because you are talking about statistics and your workshops uh and you participated how is it in the u.s is it part of the training of a regular fingerprint examiner that statistics is part of it or is it up to everyone that he gets the knowledge i mean i was a biology major and so part of my bio getting my biology degree i had to take statistics and then i was working on my phd and i had to do multiple semesters of statistics so whether I liked it or not um, so I that's where I got most of my stati- and in, in graduate school I did statistics too I've been doing statistics for a long time it's just a lot of statistics so JT tell us all about your statistics <laughs> so yeah well just just like CC said my statistics experience is from college uh, you know education but not in terms of fingerprint training once I was trained they I guess there's an understanding that if you got a college degree that you've learned some at least basic statistics and have that um, kind of, so to speak, in your belt and uh, you already have that. Uh, that part is not really part of the training, formal training of 10 prints or latent prints. That's assumed once you have a bachelor's degree or a master's degree that you've taken classes in statistics. Yeah, just to give you a picture uh, or my picture of Switzerland, it's, I, I think it's quite the same. Me personally, I have to live with the fact that I was in Lausanne, so I was tortured. That's like that's like every other university in the U.S., right? <laughs> oh, perfect. So you know what what I'm uh, talking about. And there is the the second way to come to a crime scene unit: it's police officer. It's the same way here. 
So uh, there is, how to say that, it's a little bit less. But uh, in the past or the recently in Switzerland, we are also starting to talk about an EOMC document about uh, how to articulate your conclusions. Uh, you are talking about verbal scales. Uh, then you are already uh, talking about uh, likelihood ratios, uh, supports more or less, and then you are talking about uh, two different assumptions. So then it comes from alone that you have to start about uh, statistics. Thank you guys so much for, for joining us here tonight. Oh, it was... I uh, thank you guys all. I know you guys all listen to to uh, to the show. Uh, exactly. Th and big thanks to the Patreon members. I was just about to say that uh, because, uh, again, like I mentioned earlier, we're recording on some new equipment uh, that's very portable, perfect for this kind of situation of uh, being on the road or on the run. Uh, and uh, also want to say how just fantastic it was to see everybody, everybody at the conference here this year, seeing old friends, meeting new friends, and just. It has been too long, and just seeing all those faces, and it's just all week. Hey, Eric Ray, Eric Ray, and it just turned in my head. So uh, that was fantastic. But any final thoughts? No, I again, I'm just going to repeat what you said. It's just so amazing to see everyone, and I just love that connection with the students and being able to look them in the eye as opposed to looking at a blank computer screen and not getting any real feedback in that same way. It's so much more meaningful as an instructor to interact with students, and I really do think students learn better that way anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Being able to help them through those problems, which we can still do remotely, but just like really... Confusion on their <laughs> and seeing the confusion go away when you have that interaction, yeah. So uh, thank you guys all for uh, listening here today, and we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a great week.